Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I am Michael Hidalgo, and thankful you have joined with us today. I'm here with Chris Hewitts, the author of the new book entitled The Sacred Enneagram. Chris lives in Omaha, Nebraska, with his wife, Felina, and his dog, Basil, who I was supposed to meet tonight, and unfortunately, Basil is not here with us. He is with friends, but Chris is here most importantly. So Chris, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Man, great to, great to be here. Appreciate you having me. How was the drive over from Omaha? Uh, that was the first road trip I've made with my dog, and uh, <laughs> it took a lot longer than I thought. Yeah. But uh, it's good. I've, I've been on, I've, um, I'm on about 130 flights a year, and so uh, it's sort of nice to actually sort of take a long journey the slower way. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I drove that one time in a moving truck, but I started in Michigan. Oh. So by the time that I was in Nebraska, uh, we were in a moving truck and it was loaded up and we were towing a car and we were only going like 30 miles an hour up the rolling hills in the west side of Nebraska. Oh, man. Oh, never thought we'd get here. But yeah. you did. And yeah. you're here. And um, we finally met face to face like a couple months back. We were in New York City and you kept telling me. <laughs> You look so young. You remember this? <laughs> yeah. You look like a boy, I think is what you said. So I am. Um, a beard. Oh, yeah. So, so I look a little bit more respectable. Yeah. I, I had this notion that like all the all the guys out there that that love you and respect you and the sort of mythology of of the <laughs> legends around you sort of like put you up in that like f- 57 to 60-ish sort of age range. Oh, man. Well, see, maybe. But once you hang out with me for like 20 minutes, you're like, oh, no, he's... <laughs> His looks, his looks matches maturity. Man, <laughs> well, that was a fun night, actually. Oh, it was good. Yeah. So, I'd love people to hear more about your book and learn about the Enneagram, which is what the book is about. Um, so, as we get started, just help us for, for people who are unfamiliar with anything about the Enneagram, um, what it looks like. Maybe they see the symbol and feel we- weirded out. Um, what is the Enneagram? Where does it come from? What's it for? What's its purpose? Yeah. So the, the first time I ever saw the drawing or, or the diagram of the Enneagram, it, it actually did weird me out. Like it was super evil, like two pentagrams having sex. And I was just like, <laughs> uh, I don't think I'm lear- allowed to learn about this. Um, but it's a really, I, I, I think it's, it's one of the most sort of subtle and sort of accurate teachings that, that reveals quite a bit about ourselves. Now, sadly, what we've done to it in 2017 is, is sort of reduced it down to a typology tool, personality profile system. And uh, if, that's, if that's sort of the on-ramp for you, fabulous. But, but the truth is, is this may have thousands and thousands of years of history. And um, really, it was only started um, to be used as an overlay for human character structure in the late 60s, early 1970s. So there's a lot more sort of behind this. There's a lot more going on there. Um, you know, basically, I, I like to say that that what we see taught and what's referred to as the Enneagram of personality mm-hmm. is that um, our ego sort of wraps up this set of coping addictions around a childhood wound so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. Mm-hmm. And when we can look into what the Enneagram teaches, it actually teaches that this set of coping addictions actually fortifies and creates masks that become personalities. We allow these to be fastened by society, by culture, by memory, uh, by, by our pasts. And, uh, and we lose the gift of, of, of essence. We lose the gift of, of our true selves. So what the Enneagram can actually do is help sort of loosen the, the grasp of these false identities, of these masks, and let our essence come forward so that we can 
you know, really breathe into and live into the purpose that, that we were created to, 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 the gift that we were created to bring forward in, into the world. Yeah. And you mentioned the, the person, personality profile tests that are popular today, and they're, they're helpful in their own right for what they do and what purpose they serve. But you, you think about strength finders, you think about Myers-Briggs, you think about the disc profile, there's all sorts of personality profiles out there. So as you understand the Enneagram compared to those things, what would be the difference between, let's say, like a Myers-Briggs or strength finders and the Enneagram? Sure. So I, I sometimes like to, to think that like the Enneagram is the sort of house that your soul is born into. This is a sort of holding space of, of your essence. And uh, so if there's nine sort of options, let's say in the neighborhood and one's a, a, a condo and one's a ranch, that's fabulous. You, you sort of live into the, 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 the energy and the essence of type, your type, your dominant type, actually. Um, now, your, your, um, your disc might be the sort of four directions, the north, south, east, and west, and which side of the building do you want to live on? Where do you want to sort of relate yourself to the sunlight? The Myers-Briggs might be the sort of 16 temperaments, which could be the 16 different rooms in the home. And so say it's a, a, a seven-story condo, you're going to have the same the same room seven times stacked up on top of itself. And then the strengths finders is going to be, how do you decorate those rooms differently? Right. Yeah. You, what, what, what you see with a lot of these sort of personality studies systems is, is that in a lot of those uh, overlays, we allow a fragment to lay claim to the whole of who we truly are. And I think what the Enneagram actually says is, is the whole of who you are actually isn't, um, sort of the sum of the fragments, but actually the whole of who you are is, 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 is less about a type of person, more about a pathway back to God. It's more about connecting with truth. It's more about sort of sitting into and, and, and breathing into and, and living into divine love. And, and isn't, isn't that idea of allowing a fragment to become the whole of who you are, isn't that often a way that people misuse or can misuse the Enneagram of like, oh, you know, I did that because I'm a two. Yeah. Right? For sure. That's, that's one of the ways that folks have, have I, I sort of think it's a weaponizing of the Enneagram. It's reducing people to caricatures and foibles and quirks and, and then wrapping type up around somebody and then like tethering them to type and dismissing them because, oh, that's so seven or, oh my God, these threes are always like that. And it's like, man, we're just, re we're, we're also contributing to the reduction of, of, of the human mystery. Yeah. So the first time um, I ever took an Enneagram test profile. We were the group of people and everyone's going around and this is, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this more, but it's, it's vulnerable space to begin talking about. I think this is, you know, my essence as you talk about, yeah. this is a pathway that can lead me home. And so I shared, I think this is my type and everybody in the room, except for like three people, it's like six different people said, no, that's not your type. Oh, you're a three. No, you're a five. No, I actually think you're an eight. You know, the most common mistype, and it was the worst, <laughs> the mm. worst thing ever. So we talk a lot on the, on the podcast about what's your next step. So for those of you who, if this is new for you, if somebody tells you what you are, you have all the permission in the world to say the number one rule of the Enneagram is do not type other people. Yeah, right? it's, it's, a, it's a tool for you. It's a coming of age. It's a sacred journey. I mean, yeah. it's, it's really you being ready to tell yourself the truth about sort of the, 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 the ways you fortified your own projection of your ego mythology. And to sort of yeah. unwind out of that actually is, um, it can be devastating for our ego. It can be humiliating. It, it can be, um, it, it can unhinge and unearth fear in us that, 
you know, that, that we don't have to give power to, but um, we can sort of begin to step into the, the, the compassionate sketch of possibilities of who we can become when we really know who we truly are, right? Yeah, and, and to that point, that sent me, that conversation sent me into a spiral where I hated Enneagram, Myers-Briggs. Mm-hmm. People would say to me, what's your type? And I'd say, I am the Enneagram. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to talk about it. So yeah. um, w- we've already mentioned a few times numbers, mm-hmm. um, types. So can you, there's nine types. Sure. Could you walk us through and give us an overview of what types are, like what, what we even mean by that? Sure. Um, and then what those nine types are as, as we continue so people can kind of attach that to how they're listening. Sure. So when you talk about the Enneagram of, of personality, and that's, that's really differentiated from the Gurdjieffian notion of the process Enneagram, the, 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 the Enneagram of personality, which really is, is, is rooted in the teachings of a Bolivian wisdom teacher named Oscar Chazo, who in 1954 had a seven-day hallucinogenic bender sort of a, a divine coma where an angel came to him and delivered to him 108 what he called Enneagons. And if people are listening thinking, okay, I'm done with this, let's not forget Martin Luther said the Reformation began because they were drinking beer. And he so. also said some other terrible things about <laughs> Jewish folks and yes. some other people. So uh, now, in the 50s, hallucinogenic drugs were, it's, you know, God works in mysterious ways. Yes. So he <laughs> begins teaching this in Chile in the late 60s and um, there's a number of Jesuits there. There's a Chilean... Uh, Gestalt therapist named Claudio Naranjo, who's there. And, and, and Claudio Naranjo actually takes this, brings this teaching back to Berkeley, California. And in the early 1970s, over the course of several years, on Saturday mornings in his backyard, begins to teach this through sort of psychological lenses of building out personality structures. And uh, in his backyard were these amazing, young, brilliant grad students who really have become some of the most... Uh, world-renowned teachers at the Enneagram today, uh, Hamid Ali, Sandra Maitri, these incredible folks. Uh, Helen Palmer um, was, was part of that for, for a time. Anyway, what, what Naranjo did there was he, he took these, these, these points around the circle of the Enneagram, these nine points, and he began to sort of apply observable patterns of, of, of character structure. And so when we, when we look at this, and, and this is the thing that people love the most about the Enneagram is, is when it's sort of sort of helps them unpack all of these components of their sense of self that they've always been intuitively informed or aware of, but didn't have the sort of construct to put them together. This is the part we love. So, you know, we run around the circle and, and, and if we start at type one, and I usually say these only in sort of the numeric form. So I usually say, you know, I'm dominant in type eight. My wife is, is, is dominant in type two. Um, but if you start with type one, mm-hmm. And, and some of the names that have been ascribed to these folks by Helen Palmer and, and, and Don Riso and Russ Hudson um, give the, the one this notion of, 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 of having this drive towards perfectionism, this, this high uh, standard, almost an unrealistic standard for, for goodness. And this comes from this fear that the, that the one is afraid that they're somehow inherently corrupt, which of course they're not. If you're dominant type one, if you have friends who are ones, they're the best people we know. This, this is, is, is sort of fortified as a confirmation bias in their childhood because in their relationship to their protective caregiver, it seemed like the rules changed and all they wanted to do was please their, their parent parents. And, and so when they, they made a misstep and, and were punished, that was devastating to them. So instead of sort of withdrawing into that, they sort of become overly compliant to their, to, to their superego, to their oughts and shoulds, and, and now live with this sort of principle forwardness of, of trying to, to, to build the perfect world that we all want to live in. 
The problem is, is, is they know that their imperfections and their flaws are, are the first crack in that, and so it creates deep sadness in them. That sadness is sometimes referred to as, as anger, and, it, and it's not that they're fussy or critical or, or, or grumpy people. It's that they're upset with themselves, and, mm. and they're upset with themselves because they, they have this unrealistic standard of perfection that no one can live into, let, let alone themselves, right? Right. So that's type one. Okay. <laughs> and we, we don't have to go that deep into each of these. Oh, no, I'm, I'm fascinated. I... I'm yeah, I love this. So 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 folks who are dominant type two are sometimes called the helper or the giver. Um, in the, in the '70s, the Jesuits who sort of unleashed part of this through through as a psycho spiritual tool um, also wrapped fundamental needs around each type. And so the two's need was the need to be needed. Mm. And, and this comes from this 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 so called childhood wound um, in relationship to a protective caregiver or protective care where. This this too is 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 heart centered. They're in the intelligence center called called the feeling or the heart center of the enneagram, and all they wanted to do was draw folks towards their their open, kind, benevolent heart through this through through embrace. But the protective caregiver who would respond in nurturing love couldn't sort of as fluently as as folks who are dominant type two respond with a nurturing stance. They would probably offer more protective care as as, as they could and as they should have. But as a two, these little boys and girls thought that was rejection. And so in this rejection, they mm. overcompensated by becoming more nurturing. And, and you see this. You see the, the self-abnegation of the two, giving themselves away almost at their expense, um, denying their own needs, experiencing tremendous guilt or shame, even admitting that they have needs, and, and, and realizing that they are a source of love and, and that they bring that through, their, through, through the strength of their will through, through the power of their humility when they're rooted, when they're centered, when they're grounded, mm. right? Type three, these folks are also in the heart center. Um, these are sometimes called the, the performers or the achievers. Um, these folks um, are the most disconnected from their own hearts. And that's because on one side of them is the two, on the other side of them is the four. And these are the, the most positive and the most sort of negative emotional extremes of the Enneagram. And, and the three looks on either side and sort of opts out of that is too much drama. <laughs> As, as little kids, there was uh, 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 an experience of, of loss of their own sort of sense of feeling loved because their, their misperception was, if I do more, if I'm good enough, if I'm rewarded, if I'm seen, then that is love. And so they spend their whole lives chasing down affirmation, thinking that that's a, a proxy or substitute for love. But they're, they're smart enough and they know that, that that's not love. And so they experience this, this emptiness and this, and this profound ache. Now, the fear here is, is that they don't have inherent value. And, and, and they mm. experience that sense of receiving value through recognition. But, you know, the irony of this is they ascribe value to everything. They, they, they give value. They see value. They make everyone around them valuable. Um, they're quietly competitive. You'd never know it. Um, and, you know, they, they say that the, the, the passion, how the, the, the heart of the three aches, the thirst to reconnect with essence and being is deceit. And it's not that threes are liars. In fact, um, their, their virtue is authenticity. It, the, the deceit of the three is that they play roles so effectively to, 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 to bring value forward that they begin to even believe the roles that they've played. And that self-deception then becomes sort of the fluency of, of part of their uh, malformation of their social gift or their social good. Mm. So the four. <laughs> yeah, no, keep going. This is, I love it. Um, this is so great. Folks who are dominant in type four are just, um, man, they're, 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 they're folks who, 
they see significance, right? If, if, if twos see beauty and love and goodness, uh, if three see value, um, you know, four see and ascribe significance. They, they know what is, 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 they know what needs to be celebrated. They know what needs to be illuminated. They, they, they have this sense of aesthetic because their basic fear is that they've lost their own significance, that their own identity is sort of in jeopardy. So they see what makes each of our identities unique, what it makes us special. And really that's sort of the old, the old um, sort of cliche that this is the need to be unique. So they call the four the, the, um, the romantic, um, sometimes the tragic romantic. Sometimes I, I, I refer to the four as the diva because <laughs> nothing is good enough. Nothing is, is right. The, 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 the color shades, the feeling words, the, the aesthetic of the, the of the moment, like the the depth of the memory, it, it, it's just always lacking, and this lacking leads to real a real deep sadness and a real deep ache in the four that sort of returns to their childhood, and it's a it's a childhood of of feeling frustrated with both their nurturing and their protective caregivers or parents, feeling like I didn't belong, these might not have been mine, I, was I adopted and never told, and and that that fear that they don't belong sort of supports that fear that they don't know who they are. And so they spend much of their life trying to sort of align themselves with people or things, causes or movements, work that they think is significant to make themselves feel significant. These poor folks are, are walking around holding up a mirror to everybody else showing us how beautiful we are. And it's like they, they just can't see it for themselves, right? Uh, and so. what's, the, what's the descriptor for, for type four? So they sometimes call that, the, like I said, the romantic or the okay. tragic romantic um, um, there's a few other names, you know, like I said, yeah. I, I like to call them the divas cause they're <laughs> little, they, I mean, like all of us in nine different ways, they're, they're also a little high maintenance. Yeah. yeah. Um, they get beat up the worst though in the Enneagram materials. Um, you know, the rules don't apply to them because they're so different than everyone else that, mm. that if you get four or five fours in a room, they wouldn't actually recognize the other fours as fours. They would maybe think that the other fours have mistyped because they are the only four. Their fourness <laughs> is the only authentic fourness. So, oh, I love human beings. Oh boy. So then the five is um, sometimes called the observer, or the investigator. Um, in Spanish, it's, it's sometimes called the theorist. This is the need to understand. Mm -hmm. These folks are really way up in their head, and and they're not minimalist, though they look to the rest of us as as minimalists. Like if they have two or three pairs of jeans or khaki pants and a couple of colored shirts, that's it. That's all the utility they need to sort of function in the world because really their functioning is, is in their minds. And uh, so they withdraw and they withdraw not um, out of, you know, the, the misperception of their passion is avarice or greed. They, they, they don't draw, withdraw out of, out of stinginess or greediness. They withdraw actually out of their, their desire to actually give back to us the solutions and the answers to the questions that we don't even know how to ask. Mm. And so, this is their social gift. Their social gift is sussing out the truth. Their, 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 social, their, their social gift is, um, is it's forecasting. It's forecasting anything you want them to forecast. Um, a stressor for them is, is putting a time limit on the sort of research and analysis because there's no end to learning for, for folks who are dominant type five. In fact, fives um, love learning, but they actually don't necessarily love teachers, and teachers probably slow them down, right? Mm. Um, they're... Um, they're, they're loyal um, when they choose who's sort of on their team. And, 
and they and they really have small small circles of friends and so it's two or three or four folks in their life and and those folks may stay with them the rest of their lives if you are chosen by a five um you are you are privileged mm. right sixes um sixes are sometimes called the the um the skeptic or, or the loyalist um this is the need to be secure and um these Sixes are right there in the middle of the head center, but sometimes they're the most anxious or, or sometimes perceived as the most irrational of the types. They're, they're, they're really threat forecasting. They're constantly running through worst case scenarios. They're, they're looking at what could go wrong, and, and then they're even getting further and further as if it could only go wrong this way. No, there's seven other ways it will get worse. Yeah. And, and they do this as part of their social gift to the rest of us. I, they want to protect us. They want to take care of us. They want to make sure that it's all going to be okay. And so they they give themselves over to this internal doubting. And they think that by giving myself over to doubting, I'm actually practicing establishing security. But the doubting leads to a, this sort of addiction and this loss of sense of identity. And so then they really start doubting themselves. Mm-hmm. And so if you're ever around folks who are dominant type six, and you're having Enneagram conversations, like they will always sort of ask the person who they think knows the most about the Enneagram, do, do you think I'm a six? And they always need that external validation because that mm. that need to be supported is is really really crucial to their own sense of sense of safety. Um, sevens sevens are, are are sometimes called the enthusiast. This is the need to avoid pain, and and these guys are ridiculous. They are um, they take everybody on on vacations from our own pain, and um, this comes from. <laughs> The sort of this this childhood notion of frustration with the nurturing caregiver that they felt like this nurturing parent had more nurturing to give and and didn't and 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 so they're constantly frustrated with that and they constantly self nurture and they self nurture by avoiding their own pain they self nurture by um, failing to to really be present they self nurture by anticipating um uh, uh, about what's next and and they sort of live in the future um, the problem is 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 the future is never the present for them because as soon as they're in the future that they've anticipated, they're anticipating what comes after this. Yep. They make incredible humanitarians. This is because they're, they're in the head center and, and they surprise all of us because we, we think they're really heart forward. Um, they're winsome. They're playful. They're so charming. Um, they're for a lot of us are, they're a lot of fun to be around for others of us. It, it can be wearing out. Um, but you know, this, um, this, this, because they're in their head, like I said, they, they make great humanitarians because they can actually be present to pro- profound pain and human suffering without being emotionally drawn into it and losing themselves in the connections. And so when they're rooted, their clarity is, is really, it's crystal clear, right? Mm. The eights, uh, eights are sometimes called the challengers. Um, this is the need to be against. And Man, if, if you're an A, um, you, you might be too much for yourself. If you have friends who are eights, they might be way too much for you. Uh, these folks are the biggest bullies, and even though they hate bullies, these folks, um, truthfully, uh, they're not as hard as they come across because in, in, in their sort of sense of, of, of their holding environments, they're, part of their childhood seemed to have been forfeited for one reason or another. Their, their growing up was accelerated, and so that part of their childhood that they that that was lost is actually still within them. It's just now protected and they're caring for that inner child that they don't want anybody else to see. So they're, they're, um, they're as, they're as mean as they come across, but they're not as hard because when you see them with a child, when you see them with, for example, a puppy, it's like their goodness comes forward. There, there there's this fear here for, for folks dominant type eight to, to be in control. And when they're not in control, wow, they, they lash out, they act out, they, they can be very aggressive. They are the initiating force of the Enneagram. 
the, the rules don't apply to them. Um, and, 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 and they break the rules just for the sake of breaking the rules because this need to be against is how they sort of suss out truth in the world. Um, yeah. They're intense, and that lust for intensity really is the passion there. Yeah. Um, and then the nine. The nine sits at the top of the Enneagram, and, and the nine is really the, the archetype of all Enneagram types. Sort of like we, we say, like, my ribs come off my spine just like all the other types fall off the nine to the right or to the left from the sort of brightest that are at the top to the sort of darkest there at the bottom. The nine is called the mediator, the peacemaker. This is the need to avoid. These are incredible arbitrators. These folks understand everybody else's position better than they understand their own. And they just want to be left alone. They're, 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 they're not angry people, but if you start to poke around on the inside of their hearts and their minds, you start to trigger a little bit of frustration. And that frustration is denied. It's repressed and, and, and it's pushed down pretty far. When it comes out, it's clumsy and they feel really terrible about it. And, and then they, they hide it again so that they can come forward as these great sort of reconcilers of, of the world. They, um, they, they chill things out. They mellow things down. They, um, they're, 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 just, they're just good people mm. up and down. They, um, in a different way, um, forget themselves though. And, yeah. uh, and that self-forgetting is, is sort of where they get lost. And so as I, I'm hearing you describe the nine types, as you went through each one, there was, you seem to kind of almost weave between sounding like this is the way we're wired, hardwired from the moment we're conceived, and between the other side of like, no, this is actually a result of our nurturing. Well, is it I, one of those like it's both or how does I, that work? Yeah, that's a great question. I um I sort of I'm on the side of the sort of like the Enneagram you know, the Enneagram world has all of its contested theories, all of sure. its doctrines. There's the Yale and the Harvard and the Princeton, and they all sort of <laughs> want to fight about it. I'm sort of I'm I'm in the school where I think you're born. Um you're born somewhere on that circle, and the place that you're born, the number that you're born closest to is your dominant type. Okay. So you know, this is where the wings sort of help. Yeah. The numbers on either side of your type sort of help balance your type like a color wheel might. Yeah. My sense is if we experience all nine of the so-called Enneagram's childhood wounds, but they're not real wounds. What they actually are is the impression of our parent or parent's shadow. Yeah. And, and when we're little kids and we don't know how to internalize the impression of that, we, we use it to sort of, we use it as a confirmation bias to prove to ourselves our own suffering, our own hurt, our own disconnect from essence. Yeah. Because if you're born to bring a gift into the world, and if that gift is truth, if that gift is love, if that gift is, is courage or faith, if that gift is, is equanimity, but you lose that at some point in our, in our, in our human experience, when we lose that, our whole lives, we're, we're just trying to get back to that. We're just thirsting to return to that. Yeah. And that's really the basic desire of each of the Enneagram types is to return to, is to return to essence. The basic fear of each of the Enneagram types is that we never will. And so then we cope. We cope with what in the Enneagram is called the passion, which is how your heart uh, aches for the, uh, about this disconnect. And then your fixation, how your mind convinces your heart that that aching, that coping mechanism is actually legitimate. Yeah. And then there's also um, the light. I mean, there's light and shadow to everything. And for me, when I kind of came back around to the Enneagram, one of the things that was the most enlightening for me was understanding the shadow side. Mm. Um, and so how, how does that work, like the light and shadow? Because you can hear, in listening to you talk, there can be some people that would be like, oh, I'm not sure I want to be a, a three, or man, you know, I'm not a diva, <laughs> however you want to say it. So how does that, like, yeah. I mean, th this is not, 
something of, man, you're terrible and you need to go forward, or hey, you're perfect and th- this is who you are. What's that balance of the light and shadow? Yeah, so I, so I, I sort of think that um, our shadow is is what sort of rests behind the the sort of three levels of our consciousness, right? So our consciousness at the top here in our head is 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 what we can what we experience, what we see, what we think about our experiences ourselves. Our, our subconscious is here in our hearts, our memories, it's our emotional triggers, um, it's, it's, it's feelings. And then our unconscious is our instincts, it's our drives, it's our compulsions, it's our intuitions. Well, behind these three levels of our consciousness is our shadow. And, and usually what we do is, is we subconsciously or, or maybe sometimes consciously park things in the shadow that we don't want to deal with. So a lot of it isn't great. Yeah. And some of it isn't that bad, actually. But a lot of it's the sort of unbecoming parts of ourself. What, what the Enneagram helps us do is it helps us start to just own the shadow. It helps us sort of see what's in there. Now, what you start to see is, this isn't fatalistic, but what you start to see is this, this mental fixation and this emotional passion really do become an addictive loop. Hmm. And, and we basically just keep coming back to it over and over and over again. And so like one of my, my teachers, Father Richard Rohr says, until we really do our shadow work, we don't have a sense of humor about it. But as yeah. soon as we just start to see what's back there, it's like we, 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 we have to laugh about it, which takes its power away. And I think right. this is true. When you see your passion fixation loop just c- coming back again over and over and over again, I'm doing the same things I was doing in my 20s that I was doing in my 30s that I'm doing in my 40s. Am I going to be doing this in my 50s and 60s? Yes, you are. But yeah. it, you'll, you'll do it in a way where you mitigate the, 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 the impact of the, the consequences and the damage that it has because you'll be able to laugh about it at a certain point. You'll be yeah. able to just sort of say, oh yeah, that's, there, there it goes again. <laughs> so. Oh, that's helpful. Uh, you, you begin your book, uh, The Sacred Enneagram, by addressing the question, who am I? And one of the things I found really helpful that I, I hadn't seen before was you, you talk about the difference between identity and self-worth and the cloudiness that kind of exists between the two. So, who am I is an incredibly different, difficult question, especially when you begin stripping everything away and you, 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 you pursue this idea of standing naked before God. So what, yeah. what is the difference and how do you, just walk yeah. us through how you explain it in the book of. Yeah. So self-worth. there's these two guys, these old missiologists, Chris Ugin and Vinay Samuel, and they did a lot of work um, and it, and it shows up in a few places. I, I, I think I, I reference it in a little book that they wrote called Seeking the Asian Face of Jesus but they talk about the difference between identity and dignity. And they say, mm-hmm. yeah, dignity is who we think we are. Dignity is what we think we're worth. So what do we do? We chase worth by filling up the bucket of identity. It's like, well, if I, I study the right thing from the right school, if I, if I drive around in the right vehicle, if I work at the right spot, if I live in the right zip code, and I, and I, and I, and I give power to these fragments of my sense of self, these bits of my identity, then I actually think I'm more valuable and I think I actually have more dignity. And, and that's an, an impossible no-win scenario. So, you know, folks who, who come out of religious communities, spiritual traditions, realize um, we don't have to do anything to earn divine love. In fact, right. because we are worth divine love, that worth ascribes all the dignity that we'll ever need to know. And mm-hmm. if we can live out of the gift of that dignity, then then, then, then the scaffolding of identity starts to fall down around us, and we don't have to play these silly games. We don't have to act like fools, chasing things that, that aren't going to actually help anyway. But is that something that people can learn by hearing it, hearing it taught and reading it over and over, or in your experience, or is it something 
that people have to live. Like Jim Carrey, yeah. I don't know if you heard when he talked about, I wish everyone could be as famous as me and as successful as me and as wealthy as me to realize that it doesn't do anything for us. Yeah, and and I think that's um, I think that's how we stay asleep. I, I yeah. think that's how we we sort of stay stuck in our illusions is is the addiction to chasing these bits that we think will will scribe, or actually it's not ascribing anything. It's earning our sense of worth. Yeah. If we can actually rest in in the fact that actually our worth has been ascribed to us, mm. um, that's that's the hard work because that work then requires compassion for ourselves. Actually, you have to learn to love yourself for who you are. For for the good and the bad, even your shadow, whatever you are afraid to, yeah. to to look back and see what's in it. Yeah, because so many people that I've talked to, me being one of them, you hit a point in your life where you're like, I've 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 done all these things I wanted to do. I like to your point, I got I got the car, or I got the role that I wanted, or um, man, I got a book deal, and then it all happens, and you're kind of like, hmm, that's it. Yeah. I'm I'm still a punk. Like yeah. <laughs> I'm still a little kid trying to act like an adult. Like yeah. I, I'm still well, like that's what I said when you walked in here. I'm like, you ever like feel like just a child and you're like, how did all of this happen? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you live into the reality and the realness of you're you're making the worst mistakes of your life the older you get because you're becoming more aware of what those are. Yeah. And and all the illusions of your childhood, of your adolescence, of your twenties and thirties and forties are, are are no longer helpful. Like right. So, so once all of that, like you talked about the scaffolding coming down, you're just left with, okay, I have, I have worth because I am loved. I am worth loving is what we often, what I often say. Um, and and so then, then you begin drilling down and, and this is what you talk about is this is what the Enneagram helps us do. And one of the, um, I think at times it can be a well-reasoned critique of, you know, uh, these journeys of introspection, of being contemplative, of doing interior work, is that, and you even mentioned this in the book, this voyage of self-discovery can lead to narcissism. Like it, sure. it has that power. Um, my aunt used to call it navel gazing, mm. where you're always hanging your head and looking down. Um, but for those who have this concern, um, what would you say is healthy about interior work? And I'm asking you that because you describe yourself as a contemplative activist. So your life is not about Chris, but there is a part of your life that is about who you are and continuing to pursue this health. So what's that balance that you've discovered? Sure. So, so I, I, I say this all the time. If you can't self-observe, you can't self-correct. And, and, there, and we do have mm. to sort of have that truthful sense of self for the good and the bad. And, and that really has to be non-judging. Like I, I can't over-identify with either the good of me and get lost in that or the bad in me and beat myself up. This is compassion. This is yeah. love for self. So if you can't self-observe, you can't self-correct. And, and that really is the, the first step here. And this is where um, the Enneagram of personality as a tool for self-reflection is important. It's, it's crucial. But at, you're right. At a certain point, it begins to fuel our narcissism. And if yeah. we're only using this to sort of like polish the monument to self or the self that we want to become or the, the dignity that we think we want to earn... Uh, then, then this is this is a waste of all of our times. Yeah. So this is some of the work that I'm trying to do is take this enneagram of personality, and then reconnect it with with what is called the process enneagram, which is something that this Turkish Armenian man by the name of George Gurdjieff introduced over over a hundred years ago, and he didn't use it as a personality or typology or per, uh, character structure profile at all. Gurdjieff said 
The Enneagram can translate and teach and show us the, 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 it can almost predict any perfect system. So if this is mathematics, if this mm. is science, he said, you know, if you were lost in the desert and you sat in the sand drawing this symbol, you could see within the symbol all that there has ever been taught and all that there will ever be to learn. Now, the process Enneagram actually takes processes and it shows this as, as shock points. It shows this as movement. And when Gurdjieff taught the Enneagram, he only taught it through dance and movement. And so there's something really, there's something really lost in the That's tradition amazing. here. And so what I did in the, in the book and what I try to do with the Enneagram is I try to say, if, let's, let's figure out who we think we are. Yeah. Let's, let's start to look at these masks that we've been wearing. Let's see what the fasteners on these masks are and start to take them off. And, and how do we take them off? We take them off through contemplative practice and we take them off through mindfulness intentions. And then when we can get behind the mask, the personality to the essence, how do we actually forge that? How do we sort of allow character to come out of that? And that's through the inner work. And so the punchline of the book is, is, is really, um, I think sometimes could be summed up in this little line that one of my teachers, Russ Hudson, frequently says, and he says, the Enneagram is less about nine types of people, more about nine paths to God. And I think in the book, I've, I've tried to, to sort of take this contemplative prayer posture and a contemplative prayer intention and come up with the nine unique combination for each of the types to help sort of unwind out of the pain of these childhood wounds, out of the, um, the fueling of our narcissism, out of the, yeah. the sort of self per, 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 the self perfection project of polishing these little monuments to our egos and just sort of help us find a sense of humor. Like I said, breathe into who we are and, and live freer. Yeah. And it's to that point, you can't pursue uh, transformation in our world, in our culture, wherever it is, in your home, in your relationship, if it's not happening here. And uh, Ilya Delio mm. says, we are busy building a world without, but the world we desire, a world of peace, unity, and justice must first be found within. Yeah, and she's amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a crush on Ilya yeah. Delio. I just confess that. Yes. You know, <laughs> but there is that sense of the, the people that I find the most compelling in this world are the ones who have, they're not going out and doing something, but they are in their being a transforming presence wherever they go. My wife and I talk about a couple that we spend time with who's older and people have said, like, why do you spend time with them? And we said, because our marriage is better when we leave. But what's interesting is we've never really pursued like, hey, can you help us with our ma marriage? It's just being with them. Yeah. You feel that kind of thing. And so if you're, for our listeners, when we talk about this next step, you might be in a process of trying to help and correct and support, and you're doing this from the best possible place with the best motives. And so often at the end of the day, you feel burnt out, you feel lost, you feel worse about yourself. And the question that I've learned in my time is so often actually pursuing something else, pursuing some kind of transformation or change is actually a way of keeping me away from my own stuff that needs to yeah that needs to change yeah but when i give attention to my own he needed healing and transformation which is always before me mm. somehow i end up being more uh, more of a transformative presence that people need in the world yes so yeah so my wife alina says it like this to the extent that we are transformed the world will be transformed yes and, and there's nothing selfish in that I, like I, I mean in in the in the sacred scriptures um it says love your neighbor as yourself we don't love ourselves at all so actually exactly. all the love that we think we're doing out in the world is actually <clears throat> clumsy yeah. it's 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 a 
it's a it's a hustle. Yeah. So. And so when it comes to moving deeper into this, into becoming the change we want to see in the world, which I think is what Gandhi said, mm-hmm. um, you, you talk at the end of the book about some practices, which are simple practices. You talk about solitude. You talk about silence. You talk about stillness, um, which so many people, me included, you included, that's what you talk in the book. We find these things difficult. Um, Blaise Pascal was the one who said all of, all of the world's social ills would be solved if man could spend 30 minutes in a room alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so wh- why do you think, at least for you, why do we find this so incredibly difficult to shut down, shut it down, be off the grid, be silent, be still, be alone? Well, I, I actually think that these postures, solitude, silence, and stillness trigger something within <clears throat> the core of who we are. Yeah, I, you know, in the enneagram, we have the these three centers of intelligence: the instincts in the body, the feelings in the heart, and the thoughts in the head. And this is where you practice discernment. This is the this is the wisdom of your body. This is where you and how you see the world. But solitude, silence, and stillness trigger something in each one of those hmm. that speaks to how we're not allowing these to be gifts, but we're trying to control these things, right? So for folks who are dominant in eight, nine, and one, I actually say you have to, and we need to bring stillness into how we nurture our spirituality. Eights need to stop fighting for justice. Nines need to stop mediating. Ones need to stop fixing themselves and everyone else. (laughs) Twos, threes, and fours, we need to bring solitude into how we hold our practices. Two, stop giving yourself away and, and give to yourself in solitude. Threes, stop playing, stop performing, stop sort of trying to to be seen and see yourself. And, and fours, solitude is, is, and when you withdraw into your own heart, that's where you will know you're beautiful and see your significance. Mm. And, and then for five, six, and sevens, it's stillness. Fives need to turn down the noise and stop searching out the answers. Six needs, need to stop threat forecasting. And, and sevens need to stop thinking about what's next and, and just listen to the, to the first voice of the divine, which was stillness or silence. And in that silence, Mm. allow that center to actually be the gift for the rest of us that it needs to be. Yeah. And so again, we talk about next steps. And so rather than tell you what your next step may be, my question would just be, when was the last time you were quiet? When was the last time you were still? When was the last time you were purposefully alone? Not like you woke up and all your roommates were gone, but you pursued a time of, of intentional solitude. Um, these practices that you talk about, there's so many, the the book, the thing I love about the sacred Enneagram is it feels very accessible. Mm. So if someone's never engaged the Enneagram, if someone's not familiar with it, you, you, you talk about it in such a way where it's out of your own story, your own growth, your own struggle, your own successes. Um, and so as a resource, I can't recommend that highly enough, but what, what are some other ways, uh, and resources our listeners can learn more about and engage uh, the Enneagram more thoroughly. So I would, <clears throat> I would say, you, you know, if when you're ready for it, it will find you. Yeah. Uh, when it finds you, allow it to be compassionate. Let it be a sketch of possibilities. Let it be a sacred map. And and the map isn't the journey. The map will inform the journey. So you can see where you may have come from. Um, you can see where you're, you're, you're vulnerable for getting stuck and where you might get stuck. And you can actually see where you can potentially be and grow mm-hmm. and grow into and so it can be hopeful. Um, I, I would say that if you you give yourself to this, um, don't don't feed the ego with it. Um, and 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 I mean that in both ways. Like I know oh, there's yeah. there's some of us that it's just like 
we're so proud of this and we wear it as a badge and we, and, and we lead with it. And, and so much so that we put it on everybody else. Others of us, we, it's kind of like CrossFitters. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like all of us in yes. nine different ways. Yes. Uh, but then we also do this in a, in a negative way, a really self-harmful, self-destructive way. And that's how a lot of people are taught the Enneagram is through the passions and fixations, through mm-hmm. what are sort of referred to as the nine capital sins. And I, and I actually don't think your passion is a sin. When it becomes mm-hmm. addictive, yes, that can be sinful. But your passion, your Enneagram's passion is the best tool you have to get home. It's just inadequate. Yeah. And so the inadequacy shows us a few things. It does show us the need to do our inner work. So bringing this into how we nurture and nourish our spirituality. This also shows us that we need folks of all other types in our lives. Because the inadequacy of our passion as a way of of returning to essence is something we cannot do by ourselves. And, And so I think that's one of the other great laments of the Enneagram is that this isn't something that's rooted in community or used very well in communities but is for communities. It's for relationships. Yeah. It's, it's really for us to come together and be better together. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, there's all sorts of, of ways to, to do this. You know, there's plenty of great books out there. I think, um, you know, the wisdom of the Enneagram by, uh, Riso and Hudson is, is fabulous. Um, I think Claudio Naranjo stuff is, is incredible. There's my, my favorite book is called character and neurosis. Uh, it's a little <laughs> wonky. Um, <laughs> But it's worth it. I think Sandra Maitri's stuff on the spirituality of the Enneagram is fabulous. Um, I, I, I think books will only get us so far. We have right. to do the practice. Yes. And um, those postures, solitude, sounds and stillness, um, those actually aren't the practices. Those are how we hold our practices. Um, look, I, 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 I spent years living in India, did a lot of work with Mother Teresa, and, and, and there was demand after demand after demand on the streets of Calcutta in, in the mother house with all the nuns. I mean, you want to talk about drama and community? There it was. There was demands in all of the, the, the facilities and the programs. And somehow five times a day she stopped. And, and in one of the most noise-polluted cities I've ever been, made a priority to cultivate interior solitude, silence, and stillness mm. as a way of holding her practices. So we don't have excuses. I mean, we all have excuses. Um, yeah. But... But we can do this. We can do this if we're, we're a single parent at home or if we're commuting to work in, in the city or, yep. or wherever and however. Um, the inner work is, is where this is really going to sort of show its fruit. And, yeah. and we have to remember this that in contemplative practice that the fruit is almost never evident in the practice. Um, mm-hmm. The fruit comes forward in our active lives. And that's yeah. how we begin to connect the contemplative with, with the active. Yeah, and, and an important distinction you made is it's not just reading the books. And years ago, my therapist, I love reading. And my, th- my therapist said to me, if you want to keep going further, you, you have to stop believing you can read your way out of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, yeah, that's yeah. super important. You just have to love yourself. I mean, that's, it's, I know it's so cliche, but it's like, we're not compassionate with ourselves no. and we don't love ourselves. And, and this is the sad truth that most of us don't know that we don't know who we are. And yeah. that's where we get stuck, yeah. right? Yeah. Man, thank you uh, for being with us. We're going we're gonna to continue on to dinner, which I can't wait for. For um, sure. But we're not going to record <laughs> that part. So mm. um, how can our listeners learn more about you and your work and your and Felina's, um, the Gravity Center and, and all that? Yeah. They- so you can go to wa, wa, wa dot gravitycenter.com <laughs> and... Um, 
We, uh, my wife was uh, trained and certified in the contemplative evocative method of spiritual direction by the Jesuits at Creighton University, and she's incredible at this. And oh, so uh, if you're looking for a spiritual director, um, she's incredible. Um, we also have a few folks that we recommend through Gravity, um, yeah. but you should find one in your own community if you have them. Yes. Um, and if you don't, I, I think um, really chasing down a Jesuit community is, is a really good place to start. Yeah, um, and, and what is the Gravity Center? So the Gravity Center is a, you know, for, for 20 years, Felina and I did um, international humanitarian work. It was a lot okay. of working with women and kids who had been trafficked into the commercial sex industry. A lot of kids who had mm. to fight in civil wars. It was a lot of um, working with families impacted by the global AIDS pandemic. Um, in 20 years, a lot of us suffered because of the work. Um, we did a better job of taking care of someone else than we were ourselves. We 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 couldn't stay rooted. We 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 were teetering on the edge of burnout, or we burnt out, and and it caught up to us. It hurt us. It hurt our our, our bodies, our spirituality. It hurt our our, our 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 relationships, our marriages. It hurt our communities. It's terrible. So wow. we paid for that. And um, so about five years ago, um, going on six years now, we we peeled off and and we started this little center for contemplative activism to help people who are helping people, oh. just to say, hey, like let's do good better. And when I say do good better, we're still not going to do it great. Yeah. But let's not do it at our expense, at the expense of our marriages or our friendships. Yes. Let's not do it at the expense of our, our vocational dreams or vocational fidelity. But let's root our social engagement in a deep contemplative spirituality so that it can be accountable. Yeah. And so we teach practices out of the historic Christian uh, contemplative tradition. We host retreats all over the world. We host a couple at a Benedictine monastery outside of Omaha each year do a lot of spiritual direction work, Enneagram work, retreats, workshops. And uh, we just want to support people who, who care yeah. about investing in the kind of world that we all want to live in, who, who want to nurture and nourish the new we that, that's, that's, that's yearning to, to, yes. to be born. Yeah, and that new we just seems to be bubbling up everywhere, which yes. is really exciting. So it's gravitycenter.com. Um, bro, seriously, thank you for being here on the Changing Faith podcast. For sure, man. Thanks a it's lot. It's been a blast. So the book... Uh, is by Chris Hewitz. It's the Sacred Enneagram. And as I said already, I can't recommend it highly enough. You heard Chris earlier share some resources like the wisdom of the Enneagram. Um, go and read those, learn, discuss, uh, think through this with friends, and allow it to be for you uh, a path home to God. So thanks again for joining us on the Changing Faith Podcast. And as always, much love and peace be with you.